0: Please pray with me as we get started this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to join together in worship. I thank you, O Lord, for the praises that have been lifted up to you in your name. Your word says that you inhabit the praises of people. And we have done that today, and we magnify and we exalt you on high. You alone are worthy to receive all of the power and the riches and the wisdom and the might and the honor and the glory and the blessing. They belong to you, and we are... Hear your humble servants to lift these things to you. We pray as we look into your word and consider some of, of the truths that you have revealed for us, that you would take them by your spirit, penetrate our hearts, and help us to set our focus and our attention upon you even as we live this life to glorify you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. The message this morning is God with us. We're going to be looking at Exodus chapter 25 through 30, just in very broad terms, and I'll explain exactly what's going on here in these chapters in a moment, but we are going to consider the instructions that God gave to Moses in how to build some of the things that related to worshiping him and his presence in among the people of Israel. So, we have... Looked at the beginning of Exodus, and in the beginning of Exodus, it's really exciting, right? Just a lot of exciting things going on. Plagues and plagues and plagues and deliverance and, you know, God doing all kinds of incredible things. And then we come to a certain point, maybe chapters 12 and 13. And in those chapters, things begin to transition. And we transition away from all of the exciting events of the accounts of what happened. We transition from that to a whole lot of details about the tabernacle and all of the utensils and the things that were in the tabernacle and how the people were to worship. And, uh, you know, if you're reading through the Bible and you decide you're going to start in Genesis, well, you know, you read through Genesis and things go really good and quick, and this is great, you know, great stuff. And you come to the beginning of Exodus and it continues, you know, the great stuff continues, the exciting Things continue, and then you get to the middle of Exodus, and and it just kind of like, you know, all this excitement just kind of comes to a screeching halt, and you come way down here to details, 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 and this is where a lot of people get bogged down. However, God has revealed these things to us, whether we find them exciting or not. He has revealed them to us for very important reasons. He knows what he is doing, first of all. And while we don't understand why we have to read all of these things, God has a purpose in them. And I'm hoping that we can kind of draw some of that out as we look and consider these passages this morning. Now, one of the important things, one of the main points, is that everything that we find in these detailed descriptions is really a pointer to what heaven is going to be like. On Wednesday nights, what I'm doing is I'm taking questions from... You know, you all, and I'm addressing them one at a time. And so one of the questions that somebody asked is, hey, can you can you talk about heaven and what that's going to be like? And I'm, going, I'm planning on doing that in the weeks to come. So if you get the, the weekly emails, just be looking for that if you're interested in that topic. And we'll be covering that on Wednesday night. However, we can look at what is going on here in Exodus and find a little bit of a glimpse of what heaven is going to be like. And so I'll touch on that. As we come to the end of the message, Lord willing. Now, one thing to understand, we, we are talking about the construction of the tabernacle and all of the little utensils that go in that. And in this description, it is not man-made. It's not Moses just kind of deciding, okay, well, you know, this would be a pretty good tabernacle to construct, and it should be these dimensions and all that. Moses is not deciding how it's supposed to look. Neither is anyone with Moses. It is God who is revealing the details to Moses. And God is the one who's saying, I want you to build it like this. And Moses didn't have the freedom to, well, you know, I think this would look good, and I think this would be better, and it'd be better if we had a little foyer space there, and we could all just kind of meet. Moses is not deciding any of these things. He is following the instructions that God has given to him. Here's the verse that says says it once at least, or the first time, Exodus chapter 25, verse 9. God says, according to all that I show you, that is, the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. So this is God telling Moses, I'm going to tell you what to do, and I want you to do it exactly like I instruct you. So that's where we are at. Details, details, details. That's what we get when we start in chapter 25. We have, now bear with me just for a moment, and this is a picture of the tabernacle with some of the items um, labeled there. You have the ark, the ark of the covenant, which would have been all the way in the back in the holy, the holy place, the most holy place. Uh, as you read through the chapters here, you get its dimensions, the kind of wood to use, uh, how to overlay it. In, in other words, it was to be overlaid with gold. There were to be poles and rings and cherubim in the mercy seat. All just details on how to construct the ark of the covenant. And then you had the table for the bread, or the table of showbread, as it's sometimes called. Its dimensions, the wood to build it with, that it should be overlaid with gold. Its frame, the molding, the rings, the legs, the dishes, the pans, the pitchers, the bowls. And then there was the lampstand. It was to be made of gold. It had branches, a shaft, bowls, knobs, flowers. Flowers. And, and, of course, as these things are being described, you had some instructions that went along with it. So, for example, this lampstand that was to be in this tabernacle, it says this in Exodus chapter 27, verse 20. This is what God says. You shall command the children of Israel that they bring you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to cause the lamp to burn continually. So this lamp that they were constructing was to keep on burning continuously. And then you have the tabernacle itself, the curtains that were to be used, the dimensions of the curtains, the linen, the colors, the loops, the clasps, the gold, the boards, the rings, and the veil. There were two rooms in the tabernacle, the holy place and the most holy place. And so you have uh, um, instructions concerning that. You have the altar, which was outside dimensions what it was to be constructed of the wood that was to be used how it was to be overlaid with bronze the pans the shovels the basins the poles the rings and the boards the court this would be the curtain that goes all the way around the whole thing the hooks and the curtains and the dimensions and the pillars and the bands and the sockets the gate and the silver and then the priesthood chapter after chapter of instructions about the priesthood. Aaron and his descendants, they were to serve as the priest. The garments and the breastplate and the ephod and the robe and the tunic and the turban and the sash, the colors and the linen and the gold and the precious stone and the purposes for that. Are you bored yet? And I've given you a quick summary. Imagine you sitting down and reading all of these things. But that's why it is given to us. Well, that's how it is given to us. And that brings us to our first point this morning. As we consider God with us, his presence in our midst, we come to our first point, and it is this, that God dwells with us. God dwells with us. The, the point, or one of the points of all of these things, was to demonstrate or to show that God was coming to live in the midst of us. Of the people. Now we remember we studied the the Ten Commandments and this was two weeks ago. The Ten Commandments, and you remember the first four commandments were given in order to instruct the people how they were to live with who? God. The first four, how they were to live with God. And then the last six of the Ten Commandments instructed the people in broad general terms how they were to live with Each each other. Wonderful. So you have the six, the first four, how to live with God. The last six, how to live with others. And so you have the Ten Commandments. Now, God does something else here, which is kind of remarkable. He is giving instructions on this tabernacle, which represents his presence within the people or among the people. It shows that he was here to live with the people. So if you look in the middle of the picture, you have the tabernacle and the... the the court there, you know, the the court of the whole tabernacle precinct is right in the middle. You all see that, and then in this picture you have tents here and there, just so scattered that keep on going out. And these were the tents of the people, the tribe of Levi, which worked around the tabernacle. That they were closest, and then you have the tribes of Israel all around it. And so this is uh, the. The place where God was to be worshipped in this temple. And it says in Acts chapter 25-22, verse 22, it says, "...there I will meet with you." That's at the tabernacle. "...and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat." That was on the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place. "...from between the two cherubim which are on the Ark of the Testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel." So God is saying, basically, I want you to build this thing, and when you finish it, I am going to be there. That is where my presence will be found. And I will instruct you from there about what else you're supposed to do. And so we consider this, and here's another verse, in uh, verse uh, 8, chapter 25, verse 8. Let them make me a sanctuary, God says, and that's the tabernacle, that I may dwell among the people. And so as we saw in the picture just a moment ago, God pitched his tent with the rest of the people, pitching their tents, and he was right there in the middle of them. Now, when I was, when I was growing up as a Christian, um, one illustration that was often used was the illustration of salvation by means of the house that is on fire, okay? So you're walking along the street, and there's a house that is on fire and you can see through the window into the dining room and the family is sitting around the dining room table they don't know their house is on fire and so you go to the house you pound on the window you pound on the door you try to get their attention and tell them get out get out your house is on fire and so this is akin to sharing the gospel with somebody and saving them from their sins and from the fires of hell the wrath to come and so you pound, and they, you get their attention, and they run out of the house, and they are saved from the fire. That's the illustration that I always heard as I was growing up as a Christian about what salvation was all about and what the gospel is all about. In a sense, that's true, right? This is what the gospel is. People, because of their sins, are headed towards judgment, the wrath of God. God will judge everyone for their sins. And it doesn't matter how good you are in terms of, you know, other people and how, or how bad you are, God is perfect and holy and no person with any sin at all can come into his presence. And so there is this judgment of fire awaiting all people. But the good news is that he sent his son Jesus Christ and Jesus offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. He went to the cross and on the cross he did what we were not able to do. He took our sins upon him. And he died and he paid the penalty for our sins so that we can have forgiveness from those sins. We cannot come into God's presence on our own. We do not have the ability to take care of our sins and to remove them from us so that we can go to heaven. But Jesus did that for us. And so when we come to him and we humble ourselves before him and we say, Oh Lord Jesus, please forgive me of my sins. Thank you for dying on the cross and for paying the penalty for my sins. Please take my sins away and the guilt of my sins. Take them away and receive me into your arms. If we pray that prayer, he will receive us. He will forgive us. And the amazing thing is, it does not matter who we are or what we have done. He knows it all, right? God knows everything. He knows the smallest of our sins. He knows the greatest of our offenses. He knows it all. And you know what? Even knowing all that, He still loves us. He still died for us. He still paid the penalty for our sins. And He offers us forgiveness if we just go to Him. And so if you have not asked Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, ask Him this morning. Commit your life to Him. Decide that you will follow Him the rest of your lives. That's what we're doing when we baptize When we baptize you. When we baptize you, you say in front of the church and everybody so they all can hear, I believe in Jesus. And then they say, I will live for him the rest of my life. And that is a good and important testimony for each one of us to make. It shows that we are serious about believing in him. Because there are so many people in this world who say, Well, I believe in Jesus, but I believe in my own way kind of thing. Well, our Christianity is not to be kind of in our own way, in our own way of thinking, kind of thing. It is to be publicly declared before the world. And so that's what we do when we are baptized. So some of you here may need to believe in Jesus. Some of you here may need to be baptized. And we're going to have another baptism coming up. We've got two more on the docket, if that's a good way, or in the, pen, in the bullpen, if you will. I'm watching the baseball, and I was shocked after game one and a little bit. Pleased after game number two. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just forget it. But uh, anyway, uh, we got a couple more baptisms coming up and if you want to be baptized, let me know about it and uh, we'll get you baptized. Following Jesus, that's what it's all about. Now, going back to the fire illustration, this is the difference between the true gospel, the gospel that God has proclaimed to us. Not only do we escape from the house that is on fire. But once we get out of the house, God says to us, now that you don't have a house anymore, I want you to come and live with me. He saves us from the fire and then he invites us to live with him. And this is exactly what we see in the tabernacle. You had the people of Israel. He brought them out of Egypt. They were his people. And then he came down and dwelt right in the middle of them. What a great thing that he has done for us. And so that's the difference. But this that we read in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus continues, believe it or not, for us in the New Testament after the coming of Jesus. Because when we read about Jesus and his coming, which we're going to be celebrating, right? Coming up here, the Christmas season and starting... Uh, At the end of November, we're going to spend every week uh, looking at what the book of Isaiah says about the coming of Jesus. But anyways, we are preparing to celebrate the birth of Jesus, the Son of God. Now notice a couple of verses here that it says about his coming. And, and our second sub-point here is when God dwells with us, that this is fulfilled in Jesus. So the first verse is found in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23. It says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name, what? what they call him? Emmanuel. Emmanuel, or Jesus. Emmanuel will be his name, which is translated, now get this, God with us. So, we saw God dwell in the midst of the people in this tabernacle, but when we come to the New Testament, God comes to dwell with us again in Jesus Christ. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And then, in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, the Word, talking about Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So again, we see that Jesus is the one who comes to live within us. So um, we, we consider this, and, and you know the story doesn't end there. It's just fascinating. So God came and he dwelt in the tabernacle, and then Jesus came, and he was God with us. But what did Jesus do? He went to the cross, he died. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. And then, after 40 days, what did he do? He ascended into heaven. And here's the fascinating thing. When he ascended into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit down to us. And so, what happens is, we see the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And it comes all the way around to you and me. And what God has done is that he has made us his tabernacle. Us, as living human beings, we become his tabernacle. And here is the, the most incredible thing of all. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, is one of, these, one of the verses that say this. It says this, Do you not know that you are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Wow! Praise the Lord for that. We don't have to go to Jerusalem to a temple that's there. We don't have to wait for Jesus to come back. He has made us, his temple and his spirit right now dwells in you and in me. What, a, what an amazing thing. And So here he is. He dwells with us. He dwelt with them. He continues to dwell with you and me, and he works in this marvelous way we don't have to uh, we don't have to go anywhere we don't have to make a trek we don't have to do what the muslims do and you know head to their holy places every so often in order to meet with god we can fall down on our knees or come together like this and we are meeting with god praise the lord he never leaves us he never forsakes us all we have to do is fold our hands and close our eyes and pray and there we are right there with him there he is right there with us. Not only has he come to dwell with us, but he has come to engage with us. And this is our second point this morning. God engages with us. Now, what this means is that God is not far away. He is not aloof. He has is, is not separated himself from us. There is, if he has come to live with us, if he has come to dwell with us, if he has invited us to live with him, then with him then there he is right there with us now i know from personal experience it does not always feel like god is with me as a matter of fact when i go through some of the hardest times i wonder god where are you like i'm praying and like where are you why won't you hear me do you need batteries in your hearing aid or something i don't know you know what's going on here and I'm not alone in this. You can read through the book of Psalms, and David will often cry out, you know, hear me, answer me quickly. And it's, it's kind of the common cry to just lift our hearts to God. Where are you? Because it doesn't seem that he is there. But he is. He is always with us. And I think, uh, have you ever read that Footprints poem? I, I think that just so, that captures it so well. Uh, it seems like, so we... I, I, You know how it goes, right? You're walking along the beach and you see two sets of footprints in the sand and one of them belongs to you and one of them belongs to Jesus. Then in the hardest times there's only one set of footprints. And in the poem cries out to God, why? Why did you leave me during the hardest times? And God replies, it was during those times I was carrying you. And that's how it is. God is with us. He engages with us. He is close to us. We We sing that song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. I don't know if you've ever heard that song or not. And that's good in a sense, but we have to remember that when God is our friend or he is with us, we are with him. It's not in the sense of like a buddy-buddy kind of relationship. It's much more than that. But there he is. He is with us. And so when he gives all of these instructions to engage with us, he he wants us to do some important things. So when he constructed this tabernacle in front of the people, it was about worshiping him. He wanted the people to worship him. And this is one of the things that we are responsible for doing. We have the Holy Spirit within us. He is leading us. He is guiding us. He is filling us for the purpose of worshiping God, of giving him glory, With every word that we speak and with every action that we take, we must give Him glory. And He tells us how we are to worship Him in Scripture. And sometimes it's pretty particular. We have to be careful. We can't just worship God any way that we want. We can't set the terms. He has set the terms. He has said, I am coming to be with you, and this is how I want you to do it. This is what it means for you. Now we can look at some passages in the Old Testament I am going to skip over these uh, quickly, but um, there, there's two examples. There's one where they're transporting the Ark of the Covenant, and they put it on an ox, in a cart, instead of carrying it, and the ox hits like a hole in the road or something like that, and it, it teeters, and the ark shakes, and it threatens to fall off of the cart, and one of the, the men, Uzzah, he reaches up to steady it, and as soon as he touched it, God's truck him down dead. That's pretty rough stuff. And why did God do such a hard thing? Well, because they were not doing it the way that God had told them to do it. He did not tell them to put it in a cart. He told them specifically it was to be carried by four people. So that's just an example. God gives the instructions. And yet, um, we, we can't adjust those just because we feel like it. Or we, we talked about this a little bit on Wednesday night where we're not supposed, supposed to go to Scripture and find in it what we like. We're supposed to go to Scripture and allow it to tell us what God wants. That's what we're doing. We're going to Him. Here's another verse in Malachi chapter 3, verse 8. There are so many I could um, consider. It says here, Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, How have we robbed you? God replies, In tithes and offerings. And what this is saying is that the people of Israel, they were guilty of failing to keep the command Of tithes in this particular case, and God was holding them accountable because he had instructed them to tithe. In other words, God had said how he wanted it done, and the people were to follow it. Now, before you think that this is just an Old Testament thing, we go to the New Testament, and in Acts chapter 5, we read about a couple. This couple was Ananias and Sapphira, and they were pretty well off. They had some land, extra land, that they were able to sell, and people were giving to the church at that particular time in Ananias and Sapphira they had this extra land and they wanted to sell it and give the money to the church and that's all great except for there was one problem in wanting to give the money to the church they were wanting to be recognized for it and so they sold the land they took the money part of the money and they gave it to the church and they said this is all of the money that we got from selling it and Peter confronted them and uh, It says in Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 5, Ananias, now listen to this, all they did was lie about how much they gave, but they have this wrong intention, and this is what it says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? In other words, they could have, they were free to give only a part of the sale money. They were free to do that. The problem was they said it was the whole thing. They lied. So why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all those who heard these things. I tell you what, if somebody around me fell down dead for lying to God, that would get my attention, right? Well, praise the Lord, he is so merciful with us, isn't he? Because he has given us all of these instructions about how to live and to follow him, and we just blunder around, just fail all over the place. And he is still merciful to us anyways. And this is, this is kind of the truth that rings through in all of this. And we come to our next point here. It's that we can, as God engages us, we receive mercy in his presence. And that, that's what we get. That's what we get. We don't deserve the least of his blessings. And yet he blesses, he blesses us so abundantly. So we receive mercy from him. More mercy than we deserve and more grace than we deserve. He blesses us far more than we deserve and he punishes us far less than we deserve. Doesn't he? Amen. For God and how he is. It says in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22. I'm going to go through these really quick. It says, according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. So we consider the Old Testament sacrifices, and they had to bring their animals, and they were, it was a bloody mess, literally. There was blood all over the place, and blood was necessary for the forgiveness of sins. But then we come to Jesus Christ, and he is the fulfillment of the sacrifice that is required by God. And I've underlined here, if you can see it, two passages that refer to Jesus' work, but refer back to the tabernacle that we read about in Exodus. So Christ came as high priest of the good things to come with the greater and the more perfect tabernacle, that is the heavenly tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. What a great passage. Here it says, Christ offered himself, he shed his blood, he took his blood to the real tabernacle and offered his blood before the Father for our forgiveness. What a great thing. And then 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. Praise the Lord for God's love. And he sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins now here is one of those great verses we also sing this we also sing this when we sing the song um the solid rock on christ the solid rock i stand well one of those verses talks about our anchor going behind the veil and this is so great here it says in hebrews chapter 6 verse 19 to 20 this hope we have is an anchor of the soul both sure and steadfast which enters the presence behind the veil. Again, you have these allusions to the tabernacle, except we're talking about the heavenly reality, where the forerunner, has Jesus, has entered for us, even Jesus having become a high priest forever after the, the order of Melchizedek. So because Jesus has gone into the real tabernacle behind the real veil and offered his real blood there, our anchor, the anchor of our soul, is hooked there. Just like a ship on, a, on the ocean casts its anchor over the side for it to hook on something on the ground so that it is not thrown here and there and, and uh, dashed upon the, in, into pieces. So the anchor of our soul is in behind the veil where God is sitting. And look, our anchor is held by him himself. God holds our anchor at the other end. And this brings me so much comfort because no matter what storm I'm facing in my life, no matter what trouble uh, assails me, he is holding my anchor and I have hope and I have the peace and the joy I need to make it through my storm. I encourage all of us to trust in him this morning won't you trust in him i know we're all facing trouble christina and i talk and we just consider all of the different things that some of you are facing in our church and it just seems like so many of us are going through so many hard things i know that but there is hope in jesus christ and so i encourage you all of you all of us to trust in him this morning he holds our anchor behind the veil and he will not let go praise the lord for that just as a final closing thought here, our final point, God gives us a glimpse of heaven. As we look at this, We're and, and we've already seen it slightly, that there's a reflection, uh, the, the reality is in heaven. And this is what uh, Hebrews chapter 8 verse 5 uh, picks up on. And this goes back to that Exodus passage we started out with. It says, the, the earthly things serve the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he, God, said, See that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. In Hebrews, we are told that what God told Moses to make, and when he told Moses to be really, he was really specific about the instructions. The reason for that is because every little detail reflects the reality in heaven. So you want to know what heaven is like? Go to the tabernacle and start reading some of the details and everything you read about is something that we can look forward to when we get to heaven. Here's the amazing thing. We're not going to be little orbs of light that look, you know, you know like when the light shines through your window and you see the dust kind of you know, reflecting the light and you're just like, I didn't know my house was so dirty, right? It's like this cloud of dust. Just, Well, we're not going to be little orbs of dust particles or light just floating around in the uh, eternal peace of God. That's not what heaven is going to be like. Everything we read about in the Old Testament is present in heaven. And if we get all bogged down with all the details in the Old Testament, just imagine what the reality will be like. It'll be so full and have so much stuff. There's going to be so much before us when we make it to heaven. It will be fantastic. So look to Jesus. Set your anchor there in his presence through the blood of Jesus and receive the peace and the joy and the comfort that you need for your life. Let's stand as we sing our final song this morning.